Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. Such a pleasure today to be here with Santa Barbara City Councilwoman Kristen Sneddon, who has been a guest before on the show and uh, quite honestly, one of the council members I respect the most and think so highly of. She's uh, somebody who really, really does the work because she loves it and believes in it. And even though she's a politician, she's the least political one. I've been able to cover on the council. So that's so refreshing. Kristen Sneddon, how are you today? I'm great. That was a, Thank you for that introduction. It's good to be here. Good to chat with you. Yeah, no, um, I've been wanting to talk to you for a while. You're, you're so busy. You've got your council job, which is a full-time job. You're a full-time professor at Santa Barbara City College and you know everything you have to, to do with both of those jobs. But I wanted to touch base with you on a few things today. And of course, it's Santa Barbara and housing is always on everybody's minds. And I've written a lot and I've talked a lot about this whole controversy over the specific plan and La Cumbre Plaza. And I wanted to just kind of get your thoughts on this. Uh, I We know the history. We know the SBCAG board declined a specific plan funding request. It was $1.1 million. We do know that Supervisor Doss Williams, SBCAG chair member at the time, really took a strong stand against uh, the city, against planners, and against the development process and said funding this plan will make housing, it'll slow down the housing process. And in doing so, kind of de facto supported this other developer project known as like the Taylor Project, which is for 685 units in the Coomber Plaza. So it's a very weird meeting, very odd, very awkward. Why would you turn down $1.1 million from the state to help the city come up with a master plan for housing and, and, and more units? You know, we need units, but carefully planned, working on utilities, water, resources, traffic, circulation, the schools, the things that we have to do to make sure that our housing works for everybody in the community. So is this weird kind of blow up that happened? And Randy wrote a couple letters to the editor and a defend Randy, Mayor Randy Rouse. And so what do you think, Kristen? I mean, I know that you are uh, somebody who has really pushed for more real affordable housing through reforms of the AUD program. But what do you think of this? Do we need a specific plan for La Cumbre Plaza? What's your take on this? Well, I mean, to start with, yes, we need a specific plan. And we've been really clear about this for years now. I think um, when this was talked about over four years ago, my first year in office and the idea of a specific plan came forward and we were unified and we still are unified that it's really important. And the, you know, what that SBCAG decision really highlighted for me is that we're not really doing maybe a good enough job communicating with each other between the county and the city um, it was a surprise, and it was really clear to me that um, the county might not be aware of all the strides we've been taking and how we really do have a collective will to have more housing, but that it be affordable. And so that stood out to me as sort of um, a, a, a red flag that we're not understanding each other and each other's intentions with the specific plan. And you know, I think the unfortunate outcome of that is that, to me, the specific plan would make it so we could maximize the housing, have even more housing. I think we're pretty unified in that. I'll speak for myself. I think we could really put a lot of housing there more than would be in a, in a regular plan. 
um, if we did the specific plan. And I think we're going to do a specific plan, but this just unfortunately slows us down. And I, I think it's just a miscommunication. Um, I, I understand how they came to their decision, but the outcome is that this project and all of that area will be slowed down. And I think, you know, when you look at the Hope School District, and I know that they really want to be part of the conversation, not to slow it down, but to but to help inform how it could go and, and really benefit the community. So um, we'll, we'll still, I think we'll still have to do a specific plan. It's just um, this won't result in as much housing as it could have. And I actually think the decision slows it down, which isn't anybody's intention. So, Yeah, and part of this proposal by the Taylor family, I think it's Matthew and Jim Taylor, who by all accounts are really nice people, very likable people in the community. I think their proposal is something like part of it is 74 feet. And I know that in talking to... Sarah Connect, the city attorney, and others, that there's a real conflict there because the developer proposed this under SB 330, mm -hmm. which says that there's only a certain amount of discretionary review meetings that the city can can uh, review the project on. And if they check all the boxes, then they need to approve it. And this is, of course, the state's pressure to force cities to allow more uh, housing. But we have a charter that says that anything higher than 60 feet must be approved by voters. So what what do you think of that? I mean, just sort of big picture. Can you see a 70 foot, 74 foot tall housing development right there facing state? And you think voters would go for that if it had to go on a ballot? Um, it's a good question. And I think it really depends on whether you're counting those feet from the street level decking or the feet from down below where there's lower level parking there on that parcel as it is. Um, in La Cumbra Plaza area in general, I do think it's one of those places as a grouping that could handle more height because you're not blocking mountain views um, in the same way that corridor is already sort of blocked out in that way. I mean, circulation would, would need to be looked at um, more, but I mean, I think if we're talking about from the lower decking and, and not from street level decking, I I think it's possible to be looking at those numbers. I don't I don't want to get ahead and say which numbers would be the best numbers or not. The idea is to maximize the affordable housing. So, you know, is that an extra 10 feet to have, um, you know, three luxury units or is it an extra 10 feet to really maximize the space for affordable housing? That's a different calculus to me. Yeah. And I know that right now they've proposed 685 units and 56 are below market. So, again, the state in, through SB 330 is not necessarily looking at affordable for that 80 to 120 percent median right. income when that's exactly what the city wants is for, for that workforce. So uh, I think there's going to have to be a lot of compromise the city council, I would imagine, is going to take up this specific plan issue again as a board soon to decide how to proceed. Is there a way to to work together with the tailors to say, I know that you submitted your project and I know SBCAG denied us our funding, but let's take a break here. We've talked about it. We've learned a lot since the meeting. How can we do this together? Is that a path at all? I certainly hope so. I, I really hope we can get there. Um, 
my message would be, I mean, without talking about specifics of negotiation or what they would be, is that I think we can maximize more units. And, and I think there could be more of a, of a mutually beneficial give and take there um, that wouldn't slow the project down. But I mean, because this is maybe goes into areas of negotiation, you know, I wouldn't discuss too fully here, but but I think the message that I would want to send is that yes, we want we want this too, and we're not really in a position in that particular location where we need the state to force us. We have it zoned for that. We've been talking about it. We've been willing, ready, able, and um, it would be a really great outcome if we could work together to to maximize that affordable housing and have you know, really um, a cornerstone area of a community that that extends the city and right there in the middle that that has such potential to be um, really influential and new and um, and better than what it's what it's been. So I would hope so. That's I, I, I think that all the intentions on all sides are good and and that we really want to have a successful project for everyone so i'm hoping i'm hoping that's the way it goes that's yeah yeah well you know i talked to dave davis former community development director and state street master plan chair somebody who's firmly entrenched in the fabric of santa barbara and, you know he said we need a specific plan it's like obvious it's like not even a question we need a specific plan and it's then in our housing element. I mean, it was it was decided years ago, before my time, it was decided um, that a specific plan was necessary to get maximum benefit for everyone in the community for that parcel. So we'd be going against our own housing element um, if we didn't do a specific plan. So it's it's generally accepted that's the way to go. And I think that's what we'll need to do. Yeah. Yeah. And then with that other, so we have the Taylor project on about half of that. Well, on the other side are different owners and they're working with an Arizona developer to do their own big housing project. And we don't have the specifics there, but they are coming later this year, which just goes back to that whole thing of let's work together. Cause can you imagine if you had sort of 685 over here and whatever, four or 500 over here and the city, I mean, can you imagine the people would say, how did the city let this happen? You know, it's like, well, yeah. we're trying not to let it happen. So well, if you think about it in terms even of like city blocks, it's sort of like the idea of you have all of this space that could be divided into city blocks, but you aren't going to take a moment to make that plan of even how to make city blocks. I mean, where is the bike path or the driving path through all those units? It's on a creek. It's in setbacks. You know, we have public transit through there, school districts and shopping centers and the freeway. I mean, the idea that you would sort of free for all take these, you know, what could amount to many city blocks and just say, you know, divide it the way you want to and put whatever paths maybe that you that you want to. And we're just going to hope for the best. I mean, it just wouldn't be responsible of, of us to to let it happen in that way. Yeah. And we all want more housing. We, I mean, yes. there, there are sound bites that are going to be said and have been said that we can't lose another generation of people who can't afford to live in Santa Barbara. Yeah. Well, that's true, but we also can't just go with one development when we could have a larger development that houses even more people of this generation and future generations. So it's kind of an odd debate, you know, we're going to sort of see what happens with 
the plan and the Taylor project. And of course, their project has to get reviewed by the state and the city. And we'll see. There's a lot of uh, unanswered questions there that are still well, on that, too, about like losing a generation. So say say it takes a year to make a, a, a great specific plan. Things that could be in there are preference for local workforce, preference for local teachers, safety um, people and, and nurses and, and um, people who are, are supporting our entire community. So like a generation of, of people who could stay and be supported in our, our workforce genuinely, that could be accomplished through a specific plan is that kind of local workforce preference. We can't we can't do that if we if we don't do a specific plan. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. And just to kind of move toward the beach a little bit, uh mm -hmm. downtown, let's talk about Paseo Nuevo and what's going on with that. We know that the the owners let the the deed go back to the bank. They were behind on their payments. So the bank, the the company that had uh, had uh, invested in it took control. And now they're looking to sell it. And we do know that there are national retail companies who are trying to get involved with this and say, hey, we'll invest. But it, through my reporting and talking to commercial real estate people and my sources, they say, well, no one's going to buy that mall unless they can get a longer lease. Because mm -hmm. right now the lease is going to expire in what, 2077 or something. And, and they would need 100 years. And the city is sort of passive maybe not really wanting to do it we had these whole discussions remember that whole development agreement they went to the city council they went to the planning commission the planning commission decided not to renew the lease so paseo nuevo what is the answer yeah. there in terms of housing and retail yeah well first um just because things aren't publicly reported so much doesn't mean we're not working on it. There's a lot about this that's legally constrained that we need to be discussing just in in closed session. But I will just say for myself, from, from five years ago till now, overwhelmingly people in the community say, why can't that be housing? That would be so great if it was housing. Why can't that be housing in both of those buildings? And to my mind, I've never heard a suitable answer why not. It probably needs to be a teardown and then rebuilt, you know, purpose built for that reason, because the reasons that are given are, you know, it doesn't have enough exterior windows or, you know, so make it something different. And and we own the property and we're offering those leases. So to my way of thinking, we have a lot of bargaining incentive and power to to lead those spaces to be what we want them to be. And frankly, I've not been excited about almost any of the things that have been proposed in those spaces other than housing. And especially what's with happening and how we're trying to re-envision what, what downtown could be and, and the density of housing there. Those, those two locations are so perfectly located for for great housing opportunities. So that's still gonna be my hope. I, I think the negotiations lead it different ways at different times, um, but I really hope we don't miss this opportunity. I mean, you talk about La Cumbra, the Macy's building, which is now called the Ortega building, the Nordstrom building. I mean, those are pretty much the last large spaces that have not been uh, you know, permanently set what they're gonna be and 
what an opportunity for housing. So that would be my wish. And I, that's what I hear. Um, you know, even the thing like the roller rink or the ice skating rink or different things, people are really um, sad that that didn't come to pass, but it could be something like that downstairs and, and housing up above it. I just don't want it to become dead office space or a bank or something that isn't, um, you know, feeding the, the liveliness of downtown. I'd much rather it be something where people are. Yeah. I hope it all works out. The architecture of that mall, I love. It's so fun to be in there and walking around and looking at all the different angles uh, and new things that you see in the details all the time. And it's great around the holidays. If you ever be taking your family down there, but they do the snow and just the Santa and just all of the holiday festive stuff. It's a real, it can be a real hub and it is, uh, yeah. you know, a month or two a year for sure downtown. So we'll we'll see where where that goes. Speaking of downtown, yes. we just had this conversation about outdoor dining and mm -hmm. charging for parklets, and the meeting was moved to a Thursday. <laughs> um, but just bigger picture, where do you stand? How are you feeling right now on the state of State Street in the context of are we doing a good job with outdoor dining? Have we made progress? How far are we from coming up with something? And there's the temporary plan. And then there's the big plan at the end of 2024. What are your views on this topic? Yeah. So first of all, with parklets, I think people think of a lot of different things. And there's sort of three different zones that I think about. There's State Street, which is really outdoor dining because it's not taking away parking and it doesn't need to be protected from traffic the same way. Yeah. And then there are sort of parklets throughout the city, um, which in my mind really need to be cleaned up. Like I think some of the design guidelines that we've put in place for state need to be applied for those also. And then there's Coast Village Road, which we could talk about also because I think yeah. those should have been left alone and, and not reined in. Um, but uh, so it's like three different zones of parklets. So I think a lot of times we get emails about parklets in one way, but it's it's not clear whether they're talking about all the side street parklets or State Street. So for State Street, I think outdoor dining facilities absolutely is the way to go. I mean, it's a wide street. It's beautiful sitting outdoors. You can enjoy the architecture. You can get that through view down towards the ocean. Um, eventually when the full master plan is done, there won't be the need for it to be, you know, set aside parklets because the, hopefully the ground will be level. It'll be more of an outdoor spilling out outdoor dining experience and won't need to be this delineated structure that's standing there. Um, I think we probably waited a little too long to put in those design guidelines and to get the, the parklets more unified and the idea there was to still let there be sort of creativity and differences in them. Like, you know, your color scheme or your different umbrellas or things that aren't permanent could be imagined differently, but that we got to get, first of all, ADA compliant, that was huge. And then for the stormwater, you know, it's not a real popular topic to talk about, but with the storm that we just had, you know, those parklets, made it through and a lot of them wouldn't have if they had not done the stormwater updates oh. in time and that was 
that was Rebecca Bjork's big push was like, look, we know we have big storms sometimes and storm season's coming and, and we really have to get that storm water in place. So the ADA compliance and the storm water had to happen. Um, and really uh, you had Bob Stout on your show a while ago and he has been, um, he's such a force for good in our community. You know, he doesn't even have a parklet on State Street, but he's one of the biggest advocates for flexibility, for, you know, let's make this work. There must be a way to, to make this all work. And he's really been a great go-between between the business community and council members and, and um, city administrator and really um, creative solutions to make it work. So I'm, I'm committed to State Street having outdoor dining in some capacity. Um, I think it, it's good that we have design guidelines now. That was really a long time coming um, and we needed to do them and we needed to charge for the space. I mean, that was, we're sort of moving into a, a new interim era where it's not just a stop gap, you know, slap it up and do what you can. It was sort of, we could be more uh, careful and considering about it. So I think that's where we are now. And and I was really concerned that anything along the way would shut them down. And then that we would lose momentum towards that, that master plan vision. But, but every time we talk about it, we get so many emails and public commenters saying, please don't take the outdoor dining away. So I think we're being responsive to the community. Uh, two things. Uh, it sounds like you you like the closure to cars and you, you're looking at the future and not necessarily looking back. As we know, Mayor Randy Rouse is a little bit more ambiguous on the topic. Mm -hmm. um, do you think, that, you know, Randy hasn't said reopen everything, right? But it sounds like he's going to, we don't need 11 blocks or whatever it is. So we need maybe just a little smaller area. The length of the closure on State Street right now, could you see maybe shrinking that down to something smaller or we just got to make it work with where we've, where we've gone so far? I'll speak for myself because I know this is still like in the master planning process. People have different views about maybe a few blocks and then some cars and then a few blocks. I want to move away from thinking of State Street as a mall. You know, we compare it to Third Street Promenade or Pearl Street or 16th Street in Denver, and those are all shopping malls. And I want to really think about it more as an outdoor park and community space. And if I, I don't think it's too long, I, I would love to see that length fixed and then let's program it to make it that library space or family spaces or passive spaces where you don't have to be spending money to be downtown and in community. I don't wanna think of it as a shopping mall that needs to be um, you know, getting people to shop more. I really love passive space and that's the beauty of Delaguerra Plaza. I really want the benches back. I want seating back. I want it to be a place where families People from east side, west side, old, young are able to just be in the space. So I don't think it's too long. I think if we committed to that that 11 block closure and we knew that we could fully embody it, it could be really magical. Um, and, you know, some form of transport or meandering, we absolutely have to fix this bike issue. I, I I'll be honest, I don't know why it's taking so long. Yeah. I think um, it's it's a matter of time before it's 
um, catastrophic. And, and it really, when we first put the e-bikes on State Street, I was very vocal about, we shouldn't put the stations there. We should put them on the side streets because um, that gives the message that this is a this is the corridor where we want e-bikes to go. And they're just too fast and too heavy for the space that they're in. But, um, but big picture, big picture, I can envision that this space is open and wide and leveled and used by many generations of people. Yeah. yeah. Great. Yeah. That's, that's well said and clear. The second thing I wanted to ask you about though, was which I, I'm not as knowledgeable about is Coast Village Road. Yeah. So you mentioned that we shouldn't have messed with that. So what, what did you mean by that? Um, I know that there were restaurants who were saying, and business, I shouldn't say restaurants. There were retail outlets that were saying, these parklets are taking up scarce parking. And so we need to remove them. Where are we at with that? Well, I think where we are now is that it's sort of settled, um, that it was an administrative decision to to pare them down and create some more parking spaces there. It's also in the coastal zone and you know, parking considerations are different there. You can't lose parking. Um, I I just think that they could have stayed the way that they were, and there were other creative solutions for the for the parking. Um, I think on Coast Village, which is different than on State Street, a, a lot of investment went into those, and they were you know ADA compliant or could be made stormwater compliant. Um, we also have the roundabout construction happening, and the idea of making a change once and then making a change again um, is onerous. So, and and people really like them, the, the outdoor dining. So, um, I mean, I think it's done now. Um, I'm hoping that we can maintain them, but there was a lot of confusion at the time about um, whose decision it was and who was for them and who was against them. And and really, I think whenever we can to, to just allow people to be outside that it's it's beneficial to to everyone really um and one thing about coast village road is there is a lot of parking behind like like in parking lots it's paved and nice parking yeah and i don't think a lot of people know it's there for some reason and so and it is public like if you're shopping at those stores you can park there mm -hmm. so um no, there is no, part. Those are largely underparked. I mean, I yeah. think that is part of it. And then, um, the, and then behind, and then people even suggested, well, what about an electric shuttle that goes up and down and but that picks up, um, you know, at the at the market there at the end. Um, and that that seemed like a great solution to have to have something like that. So there were, for parking alone, there I think there were other solutions. Um, and now they're sort of pared down, but I think it's still, people are still enjoying them. And so for, for now, I think it's, it's an okay solution, but when we're looking at, we're going to have to look at, you know, citywide, the parklets, um, you know, there's some that are just still have big umbrellas that have like, you know, Corona on the side of them or big advertisements on the side, and they are taking up parking. When we talk about those, um, I just think it's it's sort of three distinct zones as is the Coast Village citywide and then the outdoor dining on, on State Street. 
So I went to the city council meeting last week and I got my new batch of photos of the council members. Of course, now everyone's moving seats, so I'm going to have to get them again. But uh, one of the discussions that came up was about committee assignments, uh, liaisons to advisory groups. And I was sort of intrigued by something that came up, which involved the rotation of the finance committee chair. And I believe there was a I mean, Eric Friedman is the chair and he wanted council member Eric Friedman and he wants to stay as chair. And typically these positions rotate. Uh, they're not meant to be full-time positions where somebody has them for years and has that kind of control. And I've been covering city hall forever and that's typically how they're done. And I, you raised this question of why don't we rotate it or why are we allowing, um, in nothing personal toward Eric, of course, but why are we allowing the same person to be chair again? So what's going on there? Can you talk a little bit about why that was of concern to you? Sure. First, I'll say that was probably the most uncontentious um, <laughs> committee assignment meeting ever. Mm -hmm. um, I think we're moving into a place with council, with the current council, that we're really supportive of each other and um, deferential and, and want to see the whole council succeed. So that's a little bit of difference in, in tone, I think, that I'm really appreciating that um, we're not so competitive with each other, but really collectively um, trying to make good assignments that, that work well. Um, and so there, there are three different positions that traditionally have rotated, and that's mayor pro tem. It's just um, it's an extra responsibility when you're in that position and we share the responsibility and that just gets rotated yearly. It's it's um, and it's at the discretion of the mayor. So that one rotates and then ordinance chair and finance chair. And um, I can just say from ordinance, we really benefit from each of us taking a rotation being chair because you know, when you're chair, you can't participate in the conversation in the full way that you can if you're not running the meeting also. Um, and then also if you rotate through, each person gets the appreciation of the difference between chairing and not chairing. Um, and then it's it's sort of um, practice. It's a good, it's good sort of career development and leadership development to to have that opportunity to to chair the meeting. It's a, it's a different role. And um, it gives more appreciation for the mayor also, because when you sit in that seat and you're running the meeting and the timing and public speaking, it just, it's a different perspective. So I just wholeheartedly believe that that sort of tradition of rotating through positions is beneficial for everyone. And and um, this is nothing to, to I mean, uh, Council Member Friedman is a fantastic chair. He runs a terrific meeting um, so that maybe there's some element of that, that because he does it so excellently well that it shouldn't rotate. But I just really believe in um, the, the collective that comes from rotating that position. And and even though they are doing this um, sustainability initiative and deep dive in finances, um, I would still see a benefit to that rotating just because then a different focus, different person. And, you know, when you chair it, you take ownership in a different way also. So then it becomes everyone's initiative. Um, so it's nothing, it's nothing about Eric specifically. It's more encouraging um, on that committee. I'm, I'm not sure, but just encouraging that they might reconsider rotating that position again. I just think it, I really do think it benefits everyone. 
but Eric's does a fantastic job. It's definitely not personal to Eric. Yeah. And just by way of clarity, you're on the ordinance committee, correct? Yes. So it's not as though you wanted to be finance chair or anything. It was just oh, no. good, public, <laughs> no. good public policy, rotate it, right? Yeah. yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, it's, um, and sometimes like with ordinance, sometimes we have ordinances that take two, three years to make their way all the way through. And it really shouldn't matter who's chair at that time. It's, it's the, the ordinance holds its own weight. And so I think same with finance initiatives that um, it, 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 it shouldn't, it isn't dependent on, on who the, the chair is. And then things ultimately come to council too. So Right. Um, but again, I mean, Eric Friedman is a really excellent chair. He runs a great meeting. He's so informed. He's um, he does a great job. So I, I hope that doesn't come across in any way as as um, you know not completely supporting his his abilities and his sustainability initiative is really important. So what he's doing there is yeah. important, good work that we'll all benefit from. Oh yeah, we all love Eric. He's so professional. Uh, he takes it so seriously and it, it matters to him and it means it. And not about that, but, um, you know, it's, it's an issue, you know, we got to make sure we're making the best decisions based off of the public good and not individuals. So it's just worth having the conversation as you brought up yourself. Um, before we move on to Santa Barbara city college, your, your other full-time job, um, you mentioned, you touched on it. Everybody wants everyone to be successful on this council. Uh, we have a new mayor. We haven't talked, I don't think, since uh, Randy was re was elected mayor, Randy Rouse. Mm -hmm. What's what's different? What what has changed for you? And I know it's a tough question for you because you know how do you answer it in a way where no one is offended? But what's it like to have a different style of leadership in that mayor seat? I'll just speak to Randy's strengths and yeah. um, he is so professional and so on top of things and he's really funny, really quick witted and funny. Um, but one of my favorite things about Randy is um, he, he leaves it on the field. He makes the space for people to say what it is they need to say, even if it's in opposition to what he's saying. And he lets that round happen and he doesn't rush it. And then he comes in with his firm statement and then he's done. And when we walk off the dais, he's his regular, friendly, affable self. And he really makes an effort to make regular meetings with us and, and ask us, I'll speak for myself again, like, what are your priorities? What do you want to be working on? And he he follows it and tracks it and has regular check-ins. And, and that's um, really effective. You don't feel like you have to be making the point from the dais to be heard. You, you don't feel like, you know, is anybody listening? It's, it's really um, attention to that kind of detail. And he really does give the space for people to have different opinions. And I really, really believe in things being better when there's more input and collaboration and co-creation. And I think we're starting to see that we're getting to more unified outcomes and collectively better outcomes by just letting the conversations play out. So I'm, I'm really appreciating his, his leadership. I mean, we don't agree on everything and um, with Randy, though, that's that's OK. It's OK not to agree on everything. And and he's not um, 
opposed to talking it through and talking it through over time. It's it's not um, it's never a closed door or a closed conversation. And I I really appreciate that about him. And he loves the city, so it's a, always coming from a place where you know he he has maybe a different vision for what State Street should be. Um, but we're going to keep having that conversation. He's not just shutting the door and saying no more conversation about this. He's saying, well, it's early yet and there's still more to come. And, and, you know, he really does support the process, which is um, fantastic, really. Yeah. And as a journalist, as a watchdog of government, I can say this in the big picture sense, a lot of elected officials scheme, they connive, they manipulate behind the scenes and they're all about preserving their own power and they'll stab you in the back and they'll sell you out. Randy's I not wouldn't one. know. Randy <laughs> is not one of those guys. Yeah. You would not know that at all. No, never. <laughs> uh, you don't have to work with anyone like that. No, but Randy is not one of those guys. Randy yeah. is he'll, he'll, uh, he'll look you in the eye and tell you what's wrong and what mm-hmm. he doesn't like. And, and then he'll be nice to you and in the real world. So I think that that's something that is very uh, admirable and an admirable, admirable leadership trait. Mm-hmm. And that's why you get elected uh, so broadly with so many people, I think, is because mm-hmm. they feel like I don't have to agree with you all the time. But if I always feel like I know the real you, then mm-hmm. I can accept that, you know. So I think he has that trait. And, of course, we we spar all the time, you know, but mm-hmm. uh, Oh, yeah. No, it's not all, (laughs) you know, it's not all sweetness and light, but it's respectful and good natured. And it's with the acknowledgement that we all really care. And he really does care about the collective success of the council and being unified. He he he's willing to have his vote not count in the same way to sway because the outcome of being a unified body is is more important and i really appreciate that it, it serves the city in a, in a good way yeah right so let's talk about santa barbara city college you are a professor and you do this well we do this trip i'll let you talk about it but you recently just came back from from hawaii and yeah. i guess it's a, a geology trip and why don't you tell us about it because as a uh, part-time teacher at Santa Barbara City College, teaches journalism, we have overlap in students. Uh, you know, I hear about things and like what a great teacher you are and how fun that trip is. So tell me about your experience. Thanks. Yeah, I love that we're colleagues at City College and run into each other there. And it's yeah. like, it's like the most beautiful place on earth, um, yes. that that campus and, and such a great community. So these, um, these geology trips, I mean, our our program over for over 50 years we've been running these geology trips to death valley and sierra nevada and colorado plateau um but the hawaii one is a is a relatively new one um and it was uh jeff meyer a longtime geology department member he's retired now but he ran the trip once and i was lucky enough to go on the trip with him and then he retired and so um since then i've been carrying this trip every two years um and when COVID, we couldn't run it. But so we went to the big island of Hawaii. It's a volcanology course. It's UC transferable, Cal State transferable. So 
you know, these students have volcanology credit and, um, you know, Kilauea was erupting and, and because of all of the great relationships over the years with the USGS over there, the US Geological Survey, you know, we had top scientists taking us out uh, into the field, showing us things. But one of the things that might interest you is that the chief scientist at USGS, Ken Hahn, who does all the press conferences and all of the, you know, facing with the public discussions, um, he gave us a, a full briefing in the USGS press room with the, the screens up. And it was just him, but he was showing like, this is what this is what it looks like. And he gave us a full Mauna Loa eruption briefing. And, mm-hmm. and the students were really engaged in a different way because they're out there in the field and and seeing it all. I mean, lava erupting is a pretty um, amazing thing and um, is a great class. So, and you know what the Promise Program, this is something to mention too, Promise Program covers everything. So if a student's on the Promise and and is going on one of our field courses, it's covered. And so I think this opportunity of going out in the field and, and seeing things in a different way, it's it's um it's really fantastic. And a lot of those students don't have necessarily geology background, but um the other thing is we have some students who are 70 and you know, some students who are first year in in college and and it's all different ages, but the experience is the same of just like, wow. Um it's, it's really pretty special trip. You should come next time. Wow, that sounds really fun. Um, I've been to Hawaii once, but you know who doesn't love volcanoes and lava? It's so impressive and intimidating, and I'm, I'm sure, obviously, I would learn a lot taking that class. Um, so, if you're on the Promise program, mm-hmm. your airfare is free, or what? what Not do you the airfare, oh, but uh-huh. everything else. Okay, everything else. So yeah. that you'll be able to like lodging and all of that stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That so, Promise program is incredible. What it has done for the students in our community to, to have free access to public education, quality education, it's 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 really amazing. Really amazing. As you know. The, yeah. What is the main, it is amazing program. Uh, what is the main thing people learn when they go on the trip? And help me understand what, what it's like. Are you Are you walking the terrain and looking at, the you know sediments and the ground i mean what are, what are people doing the whole time yeah. mm-hmm. well there are no sediments because yeah. it's all volcanic yeah. <laughs> just kidding but um, <laughs> <laughs> so like you know for instance one of the days we met with um, a professor at the university of hawaii uh, steve lumblad and he tells us all about the programs there and sort of you know they love our students um at the university of hawaii so they try and recruit but then he took us through a lava tube and and taught us all about sort of groundwater in that area and water considerations but then also how the lava flows uh he he took us through their department and showed us um you know different ways of, of breaking the rock up and measuring what's in it so that then they can tell what's in the magma chamber below um we had like Don Swanson, this journeyman USGS, you know, really forefront in the field, um, take us out and it, admit to us or describe to us how some view that they've held about volcanoes and water for decades, um, just because of this last eruption, changed what they thought. And he talked all about how science is a changing field based on evidence and that, you know, you let your ego go and, and you let new science happen. So, 
we we spend the days like you know on some days we're walking five to seven miles about a a, a wow. day mm -hmm. um and just looking at different lava structures and but there are also like a human impact too there's a footprint ash where 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 families or people were caught um and from a big ash flow and you can see the the footprints in in the ash so we talk about the history there and then um we really brought in this time the the indigenous perspective um, and had a lot more talks about um, sort of that history. And we went to one talk um, that the National Park put on and it was in native Hawaiian and it was a Hawaiian speaker talking about the overthrow of the monarchy and um, sort of did a play on that. And so we, you know, we bring that in and astronomy and and um, sort of one of the astronomy shows we went to was about sort of the different way of interpreting the stars if you're using a different lens, if you're um, from a, a native perspective mm -hmm. lens as opposed to um, sort of the the Greek lens or the, the, the lens that we talk about stars in. So the trip mm -hmm. is different every time. You know, I try to make it sort of co-created and responsive to what the students want to be learning about. And there's usually some big, uh, you know, science journal article about the latest understanding. And we sort of focus on that and go to the places that might help to understand that changing science. But I mean, that's what I love about science. It, it, it changes. And with new information, you can have new understanding. And then that's a good thing that doesn't mean it isn't real or isn't valid it's it's part of the process of, of getting to deeper understanding so it's really fun we stay in a youth hostel well it's not a youth hostel hostel we rent the whole thing out okay. and do our own cooking and and uh, people have different jobs you know while we're there and it's really fun actually it's a really fun trip you know <clears throat> hearing you talk that way it kind of reminds me of that's sort of the the real you, you know, because yeah. you know the elected elected uh, service, public service, that's awesome, and there's so much there. But hearing you teach, you know, hearing about how you teach, you really see you coming to life, and I identify with that. So it's so fun to to talk to you about that. Um, what would you, what would you say? I mean, you've been doing this a while, okay? Mm -hmm. So what do you what do you love about what you do? When people think about geology, they think of rocks. Okay. And obviously, I mean, obviously, as you pointed out, I could benefit from taking that course, uh, but, but we think about rocks. Okay. And it's obviously more than rocks, right? What, yeah. what do you love? What do you enjoy so much that you would take, you know, a week or however long it was to, to go do this and, and just talk a little about like what, what it's like to, to, to be in that space with these, these young minds, these minds that are being exposed to this for the first time. Mm-hmm. It's really magical. I mean, one of my favorite things, my what, what got me into the field that I'm in to begin with was interest in groundwater and, um, you know, sort of roundabout, like, how do I work on groundwater? And then I got into geophysics as a way to work on groundwater. And what I teach mainly is environmental geology at City College. And it's all about the interplay of how humans impact that thin layer of the earth, but also how that impacts humans. So things like debris flows, atmospheric rivers, extended drought, groundwater issues or problems, or glacial melt and state water. I mean, all of these things have such an intersectionality, but my my favorite thing is when you take students, like a lot of the students in environmental geology are communications majors, and they're just, you know, checking a box to fulfill oh. a requirement, but they're really surprised by the end about 
how much it impacts their everyday life. I mean, earthquakes and understanding tsunamis and, and other risks and factors, but also sort of the mitigations and what we do about it. And the really cool thing about Santa Barbara is we have examples of everything. So when we talk about state-of-the-art landfill, or we talk about debris flows or flooding or earthquakes and all of the things that we have were really special place. So by the time students are done in there, they realize that the rocks actually like really matter to them. And when they can walk around and look at the type of rock that they're on and realize what that means in terms of risk or mitigation or soils or climate change, just by understanding, you know, just basic tools of looking where you're already standing. It's, it's pretty amazing to see that kind of like um, perspective op opening up in that, in that way. And the main thing we teach in sciences now is critical thinking, like how to think for yourself and, and be able to disaggregate, you know, data or false charts. And, and, you know, you might look at a climate change chart that is used by somebody to say climate change isn't real, but if you're looking at it, the same chart, but really looking at the data points, you can see that it's showing that it is real or whatever. So that's my favorite part is that taking students who don't think it has any relevance to them and, and think that they're, you know, just fulfilling a requirement. And by the end, they the, the realization of the relevance and that it's accessible to them, that they have that opportunity themselves from here on out, that they should know the ground that they're standing on and you know where the oil comes from kind of thing yeah. yeah that's amazing and i love those students too where they come in and they're like entirely different majors and like they take journalism or like oh this is what i want to do and you know or you know I, it's this is going to make me better in my own major and writing and all that it's such a yeah. incredible feeling did you see any tarantulas like my 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 my, my <laughs> My vision is, you know, you're walking up these mountains and, you know, you're looking, you're trying to see the lava and there's like these giant tarantulas. You know, I'm traumatized from the, the Brady Bunch episode I saw when I was a kid. You know. We talk about the Brady Bunch episode and you know what? These students are so young. They don't know what I'm talking about. But that Brady Bunch episode, when he took that lava rock. So we take no lava rocks or we'll be first. But um, there are big, big orb, orb spiders there too. And one thing we do for fun is, go snorkeling which um for a lot of people have never done it like i've never done it before these trips and it's just like whoa um but we're on the barren side it's sort of the desert side so not a lot of um tarantulas but there are some <laughs> more <laughs> sediments yeah <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I know that people of our generation, that Brady Bunch episode is like so memorable, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but um, yeah. Professor Snedden, Council Member Snedden, uh, always appreciate the opportunity to what? talk to you. So uh, thanks a lot again for this great conversation. And, you know, you just got reelected recently and, you know, you're doing great work. So thanks a lot for your time. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you. <laughs> Thank you.